Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Adams, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders from around the world. Today, we have the opportunity to hear about Andy Hargrave's new book, Five Pathways of Student Engagement, Blazing the Trail to Learning and Success, that he co-wrote with colleague Dennis Shirley from Boston College. It turns out that Andy has been very prolific throughout this pandemic. He's used this time to put thoughts into words, reflecting back on his research done in education systems globally and synthesizing it into meaningful reflections. Student engagement is one such topic. The pandemic has forced educators to think about how to engage all learners, not only in the classroom, but also when learning moves to the home environment. Throughout their book and this discussion, Andy notes the shift from the age of achievement and effort to the age of engagement, well-being, and identity. My question, is it a shift or an evolution? Andy Hargraves, it is such a pleasure to have you here with us again today. I always feel privileged when I get an opportunity to talk to my colleague and my friend and actually my neighbor. Welcome. Good morning. Great to see you. And we are going to be talking about a new book that you've written, Five Paths to Student Engagement, Blazing the Trail to Learning and Success. But this isn't your first book this year. You've had another one and you've got another one in the works. An incredible time to be prolific. And what's that all about? Well, there was one year a few years ago when I got four awards or prizes or honors all in a year. And I'm sure one of Two of my colleagues thought that this guy's a bit too type A for my liking. But of <laughs> course, they were all the result of uh, different years of work on different timelines that just all happened to come to fruition at a particular point. And I think all the books this year are really rather like that. So uh, before the pandemic, I was involved in a project with my colleague, uh, Dennis Shirley, for uh, seven years in the US Pacific Northwest with a group of over 30 schools in five states, building a network in rural schools, most of them in poverty, quite isolated, who decided that they wanted their focus of their network to be on student engagement. And then around the same time, I was in a second phase of work in Ontario in Canada, again with my colleague, Dennis Shirley, but in the previous phase, it had been with another colleague, a measurement specialist, actually, Henry Brown, working with 10 school districts around the implementation of what was then the government's agenda of four pillars, which were broad excellence, equity, well-being, whilst also maintaining uh, public confidence. And these bodies of work came to a conclusion at roughly the same time. Then we were hit by a pandemic. And I've been pretty active during the pandemic in various kinds of ways, collaborating with teacher unions, other people in the field. So there was a lot of knowledge coming in from here as well. And first, we thought we had one book that would tie all this uh, together, which would talk about how we were moving from an age of achievement and effort that really focused on measured uh, test scores and growth in achievement results and narrowing of achievement gaps through to an age of 
engagement, well-being, and identity that really touch more closely the breadth and depth of the human experience in teaching and learning. The book got much too big. It became an absolute unreadable and unmarketable monster. It was the opposite of everything we're writing about. It was disengaging. It would make people feel <laughs> ill and, um, <laughs> and they wouldn't know what to do with it. So we decided to break this down into three and um, then four books. One of them, it was out in June this year, and that is The Five Paths of Students Engagement with Dennis Shirley. One is on well-being in schools, three forces that will uplift your students in a volatile world, which is coming out with ASCD in the United States in uh, December. A third book that Dennis Shirley and I are writing on uh, identity, which we think will say some very new things about identity and how we approach this in an age when it's on everybody's mind. Fourth, the book on leading from the middle, which is really the system perspective of how to make all this happen within our schools, our school districts, our national policies, which Michael Fullan and I are indeed writing together at the moment. So it looks like type A-ness gone wild, but actually it's the culmination of many years of work with different people. It's interesting to see, Andy, how during the time of pandemic, people have had to, I mean, the, the common term is pivot, right? But, you know, academics have shifted the work that they're doing. I mean, you spent so much time going out and working with districts and working with national education systems and advising and keynoting and all those kinds of things. In a time of pandemic, those things weren't happening as much. Yeah. And so how great that you and Dennis and other academics have taken that time to actually put down on paper some of the things that your research has been demonstrating over the last decade. Because unless it's written down on paper, we lose that. We lose the learnings that have come from that. So wise use. I'm also the kind of person, to be honest, who when I'm in the midst of a huge problem, actually a small problem or a huge problem, I think there must be something do here. I don't know what it is yet, but there must be something. My daughter reminds me that when she was a child, my favorite saying as a father was, every problem has a solution. And so, for example, many years ago, I was evaluating a student dissertation in the Azores with somebody else. So they decided to take us on a tour of the island. We were hit by a hurricane, actually by a typhoon. And uh, it blew trees down, it blocked off the road, it washed away the road behind us, it blocked it off in front of us. We're trapped in the middle in a road of an old volcano. The river beside the road became the river on the road, turned into a river. We tried to drive back up it. The car began to float. So we began to float down the river. I was with these three people. I was sat in the front. And then I put the handbrake on. And people around me said, why are you putting the handbrake on? We're floating. And I said, well, we need to do something. And there's just a possibility we might hit a bit of land. And indeed, we did. And, and so we were able to get out of the car on a little island and a tractor came over and pulled us out. So I always believe there must be something we can do here that will improve the situation. And during the pandemic, of course, I didn't think I could solve the pandemic. But I, I felt, you know, I and all the colleagues I worked with had a lot of knowledge by this time of things like well-being, engagement, and how systems respond to change and collaboration. And uh, it might be helpful to draw on this to help people think their way through it and think their way beyond it. Let's 
dive into the book a little bit. And uh, this one is on student engagement. Of course, lots of talk about that now and not surprisingly, even more talk about it since pandemic, you know, educators working so hard to make sure that they can still connect with their students in a virtual environment. And, you know, some teachers around the world that didn't even have the luxury of being able to connect through a virtual environment, they were dropping off packages of resources, etc. for the kids. So, you know, student engagement is a big topic. You introduce in the in the beginning of the book kind of the psychological approach to engagement and the sociological approach. And I know you're a sociologist from background. So tell me, what's the difference between the two and which side do you fall on or is it both of them? Well, first of all, although my training is sociological, when I did my PhD in my 20s, I was really interested in the dynamics of the classroom interaction and people's uh, perspectives on uh, teaching and why they taught the way they did and what it was that led them to teach that way. And often it's things like the community you're in, the people around you, the culture you're part of, the biography you've had, the identity you've developed, your relationship to your subject. And frankly, some of the best literature at the time was not only in sociology, it was also in social psychology. It was in uh, things like sociolinguistics Mm -hmm. and uh, classroom discourse. So from the very beginning, I've always really spanned using a sociological perspective of the big picture to try and connect with people's experiences of the more immediate picture of the world around them in by case in their classrooms, their schools, their communities, and and so on. So it's always been there. And when we looked at the literature on student engagement, because remember, this was the focus that our educators wanted to take. We followed them. They didn't follow us, but we're paid to read books. That's our jobs as professor, and to have the time to make sense of them. It's a wonderful job, really. I was going to say, good deal. (laughs) It is. It is. So we went off and thought, well, there's research on this. Let's look at it. And the research was overwhelmingly psychological. Some of it was profoundly dull. It was based on experience with rats or student volunteers or large-scale databases and didn't really get to grips actually with its subject matter, which is what it feels like in real situations to be engaged and disengaged. There are a few theories that broke through this, and we talk about them in the book. They include things like Abraham Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, Harry Harlow's theories of intrinsic motivation, and Mikhail Shimahaili's views of flow and being in flow, for example. So we found some of these really did penetrate into, if you like, the existential experience of being engaged and disengaged. But there was also a key paper we came across at the time by a father and son team, both called the Lawsons. I don't know how many teams there are like that. They're American. They got the best research paper of the year at the American Education Research Association, they looked at all this field and they're sociologists and they said there were things missing here. None of the engagement field in a big handbook on the subject talks about technology or poverty. You can't imagine if you're a teacher that things like technology coming into your schools have no relationship to engagement or whether the kids are in poverty or not. So then we began to look, we're well trained in in sociological perspectives. We drew on some of these, some of the classics in the field and some more modern ones like um, feminist uh, social science, for example. And in the end, we felt that the psychological perspectives were helpful, but they weren't enough. And if we focus only 
on as positive psychology talks about, which is the view that, well, we may not be able to change our circumstances, but we can change how we think about those circumstances. Uh, the sociological perspective tells you, oh, no, the circumstances also really matter. It's not just how you think about poverty that matters. So poverty really matters too. So they're important, but they're not enough. And what our book tries to do is not to set them against one another, but in the way that John Dewey always did in his uh, classic work in education, is to say, in the main, we live in a both-and world and not an either-or world. And what does a both-and view of engagement actually look like and how can it help people? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a value add to the book, Andy, is that you and Dennis have done a good job of providing an entry point into the book and the concepts to protect practitioners like myself, who certainly you know are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy and the concept of flow, et cetera. So it gives us an entryway into the book, but then you help to connect the dots to the more academic thinking, which pushes our thinking to think of the full span of what engagement actually is. I think that's a real value add to the reader. Thank you. Yeah. I think teachers intuitively get that, that both these things matter. What they do in the classroom matters and what happens in the family matters. They both matter. And I think it helps if they have people who are not locked into very partial views of the world that is their disciplinary training, but can embrace the whole of their experience. Agreed. It's a little bit like when we have the brain scientists come in and explain to us actually physiologically what's happening as learning is taking place. Because as you said, the practitioners, the teachers, they, they see it happening all the time. Yeah. You have an expert from outside the domain of education actually explaining the science behind that. It just really embellishes what we know about the world and how we can deal with children. That's really helpful. And I think what we also try to do in the book as researchers who work mainly collaboratively with people. So we don't dive in and study people as if they're laboratory subjects and then write up about them and go away. But we work collaboratively with educators. And when we come to write a book, a story, a narrative, that it, it needs to be respectful of the evidence that we see. It needs to be genuinely inductive from what we see before us, but it also needs to be connected to what is known and what has been said in the field and go constantly back and forth between the two, respecting both kinds of knowledge, both the practitioner knowledge and also the professorial, the research-based knowledge as well. I think the other thing, Andy, is that because you also play the role of advisor to national, provincial, state-level education, you know, ministries, department, national departments of education, because you play that advisor role, it also inspires you not to just go in and out as a research project. You actually want to see the long-term impacts because if you're advising the officials that are creating education policy, Going in and out quickly and doing a research project isn't going to give you the background to be able to actually wisely advise those uh, officials. And they're the ones that are creating policies. And, you know, that role that you play as an advisor and some of your colleagues play as an advisor, that is so important to us on the ground because we need people that can advise 
based on what is happening in classrooms, what the imperial evidence is saying, and to be able to help them create good policies. And of course, we've seen examples of when that is highly successful and other times when it's not so successful, but it's an important role. I think for both of us, Jenny, that as we get a little older and we get more experience, and if we're inclined to work across the boundaries and we're curious, I think, then, of course, we do get opportunities to work on that big stage of working with uh, ministers and global organizations, exactly as you do with things like the Salzburg Summit and OECD and the Global Education Leadership Program. I could go on to list all your achievements, but, <laughs> but they're, they're just three examples of what you do. And, and that opportunity has, uh, in time, come to me as well. But when I came to Canada in 1987, in my 30s, the job I applied for actually was in a field centre at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. And the field centres at the time were often located in a school, not in a university. Uh, it was a professorial job, but the job was to build partnerships with schools and do action research and development projects in collaboration with schools. I'd already started doing a bit of this in the UK at the University of Oxford, which connected with a local education authority led by a very inspirational guy you may have met called Sir Tim Brighouse, who became Chancellor of Schools for London, sued the Conservative Education Minister in the 1980s for libel, and then with the £2 million he won, allocated it to a professional development fund, which he named after the minister he'd got the award <laughs> from. So, so, so for a long time, you know, I've enjoyed working with practitioners. It, it was that kind of job that drew me coming to Canada. And at first, and this is very important for people earlier in Korea who were listening to this, at 28, you're probably not going to be asked to be in partnership with a government minister or prime minister. Sometimes you can be, but probably mainly you're not. But you begin by collaborating with teachers, with uh, schools, and then in, in time with school districts and, and so on. And they're all working across the uh, practice research divide in, in bringing them together. And eventually, of course, it ends up looking like big and fancy, like you've done it all your life, but you haven't. It grows over time. That is such wise advice. And, um, you know, for listeners, we've got lots of school principals and district leaders that listen into these podcasts. So that's great advice. It's a progression. Those are experiences that you gather together. And then at some point in time, you're able to synthesize them and actually provide advice at different levels. That's for sure. I'm going to swing back into the book again, Andy, and uh, let's talk a little bit about that uh, two ages of educational change, uh, the age of achievement and the age of, I'm going to call it engagement and well-being, kind of separating those two together. And that's a piece I've thought a lot about it. And you and I have debated this kind of topic back and forth before. And what I liked in the book was that you didn't make it sound like the age of achievement was all bad and you didn't make it sound like the other was all good. What I thought about often afterwards, is that the age of achievement, to me, it's like any of those ages. It depends how people interpret the work. Yeah. And we saw education systems in the age of achievement that did horrible things. And I'm sure not intentionally, but the kinds of policies that were put in place from 
excessive standardized testing and punishing schools and students and staff if results were low and basing everything on very narrow assessments. Obviously, those are terrible things for kids. They're terrible things for teachers. I can't imagine how that would have been interpreted to be a good thing. But when I look back at my experience in leading the district that I was involved in, we did amazing work during that era. And the reason why it was amazing work is although it was the foundational literacy and numeracy, we knew that the way that kids would improve their outcomes in literacy and numeracy was by going deeper. And I think of the work that, you know, the deeper learning, New Pedagogies for Deep Learning with Michael Fullen and Joanne McKechn and Joanne Quinn. When I think of the whole type of work through inquiry-based learning, the, the culturally responsive, all of those things started during the age of achievement because many jurisdictions like ours realized that the only way that kids will achieve better is if we're doing a better job of connecting them with their learning. Yeah. So. First of all, I think you've accurately picked up that there are uh, some systems and countries in the world, particularly England, so not the whole of the United Kingdom, but England, Scotland and Wales are quite different. Right. And the United States at the federal level, not at every state level, there, from what I'm about to say, there are important exceptions like the state of Vermont, now the state of California and the yes. state of Oregon and so on, uh, that... The age of achievement and effort was about large-scale standardized testing. In, in America, every child in every grade, in almost everything they did in elementary school, the consequences of that are dreadful and uh, well-known. They were linked to really fueling a market competition with uh, charter schools and justifying closing public schools for regular district schools for, for charter schools, same in England, actually and firing principals and taking on the unions and all those things we know very well. In other places, and I think perhaps Ontario in Canada is the best example. In 2007, I was asked to do a project when we're in the middle of this age, which started around 2002 in Ontario. Mm -hmm. I was asked by the organization of the 72 directors of school districts if I'd work with them on the implementation of the inclusion strategy, which is more than special education. It's about diversity, language, uh, Absolutely. Uh, other, uh, now we would understand LGBTQ, uh, poverty, and so on as well. So when I started this, obviously we knew lots of data were coming at us. And some of the people responsible for the age of achievement and effort were frankly a bit apprehensive about what we might expose by doing this. You know this very well because you were in the system at the time. And what I predicted, it's always easy to say after you found something, well, that's obvious, we found that. If you ask people to predict what a study will find, there's lots of things that are obvious and some of them are contradictory. And I predicted that I would come across two things I would be unhappy about. And uh, one of them was the testing. Mm -hmm. And the other one was the approach to literacy, which following some influence by England that it had had on Ontario, I felt would be hierarchical, prescribed, top-down, narrow, basic, and not about the pleasure and the joy of reading and writing. And after spending time in the schools and with the districts, so we came out of it by having our prior beliefs 
reinforced in one area, which was the testing. So the testing did lead to, despite some benefits, of drawing attention to the importance of inequity and achievement gaps, which did galvanize people's energy, also had all the consequences we now know about testing, tended to narrow the curriculum. There were some schools who focused on kids too much, just near the level of proficiency, rather than all kids who needed help and support. Later on, we found out that still teachers, uh, schools tend to avoid innovation in the years where the test exists and even in the years before the test exists. So all those things happen to the testing, uh, not everywhere, but a lot, like uh, far too much to ignore. But we're wrong about the literacy. And we found that uh, compared to England, for example, teachers, by and large, once they got into it, and over their apprehension, they really liked the approach to literacy. They felt it was about the kinds of things in literacy they genuinely wanted to teach and to help kids with. They found success with some kids where they'd, including Indigenous students, for example, where they'd never found any success anymore. So it built confidence and everybody thought they could already, t- teachers already think they can teach literacy. When we came into mathematics, by the way, that blew that one apart. So we're now kind of into the same kind of thing with mathematics where teachers have less confidence. And so it was bad. And so what we learned from Ontario is even when the system really tried very hard to remove some of the worst features of testing that other countries had, they still persisted and they still persist. And the way to think about the testing now, I think in Ontario and elsewhere, as a large-scale standardized testing everyone, is it's done its job. It's time is over. We now have other ways of approaching accountability, probably by sample rather than by testing everyone. And we have stronger collaboration now. We've seen over 13 years of working with schools and school districts in Ontario that collaboration was always there, but it's got more depth, it's got more punch, it's got more focus. And uh, we believe now teachers are more able to collectively agree what an assessment is worth rather than for it to be an individual idiosyncratic judgment. Well, I think in Ontario and, and many other places, I mean, I think all of us firmly believe that when we're looking at individual student achievement, the teacher is the best person to be assessing that. Yeah. And really, you know, we have to be very clear on, you know, my personal beliefs. I think it is helpful to have occasional large-scale assessment across an entire system, but it has to be used for that purpose. It's a snapshot in time. It's taking a look at some of the indicators of how are we doing as a system so that we can think about our policies in the right place. Do we have the resources in the right place? It's as much about how we use the information as it is about what we're collecting and, you know, everything in moderation, I think. Let's shift over to the age of engagement, well-being, and identity, because, of course, You've started with this book and you're going to continue with a book kind of on each one of those pieces. Yeah. And again, you know, do you think of this as a shift from the age of achievement or do you think of it as an evolution? And what I'm wondering is, is that education system dependent in the sense that if the one education system, you know, interpreted the age of achievement in a certain way, do they have to make a shift in order to get away from some very problematic practices or in other systems where there was an approach to the age of achievement when they were going deeper, et cetera, does that 
mean that it's more of an evolution into looking into that? I've got some feelings on it, as you can imagine, but I'm curious about yours. With any kind of change, it usually has three conditions behind it in any kind of organization. One is existing approaches to things no longer work. And more and more people become aware that they might have worked once, but they're no longer working as well as they should be. In education, that happens not just when the teachers realize it's no longer working, but when the parents and the students and communities and the business community start to realize that it's no longer working as well. And then there's a second thing, which is that we begin to see that other kinds of needs are arising. So we might have thought once that what people needed was literacy, numeracy, basic skills to be competent and effective in the workforce. And then lots of people, business communities in uh, in Canada and elsewhere, the OECD, which has now got 30-something global uh, competencies, as well as their traditional concerns with science, mathematics, and uh, literacy. People start saying the, the world is changing rapidly. We have a global mental health crisis, we have uh, climate change, which is uh, threatening our very existence. We could go on, there are others, we've got a potential collapse of democracy, only 8% of the countries in the world are rated by the economists as full democracies. The United States is not one of these, by the way, nor is the United Kingdom. So we become aware that things are profoundly changing, and not only is our old system not working in its own terms anymore, but it's definitely not meeting these new needs that are arising. And then we become aware of outliers. Uh, So if we have good networks and if we collaborate a lot, including globally, we become aware that there are outliers that can help us figure out what our response to this might be. So internationally, I saw in the, from around about 2007 onwards, Uh, PISA, the OECD's PISA, had uh, exposed that the highest performing countries were not what they thought would be, would be the most competitive countries based on examination results and um, fairly narrowly defined market skills, but were countries like Finland or Singapore, quite different from each other, but not the kind of countries we would expect to be the most successful educationally. And when we looked at these countries, we found that they had a strong teaching force, they had a broad range of values, they had strong commitment to the public good, they had a humanistic orientation. Singapore just rated this last week, the third most livable city in the world after Toronto and Copenhagen, actually. So from these outliers, we began to get a sense that in many ways it was a more humanistic system that actually was not an alternative to effectiveness, but was also a way of increasing effectiveness in this globally changing world. And uh, we began to see a a number of national systems in part influenced by this because they went to visit and see what these countries were doing, move in that uh, direction. And uh, good examples would be of course, Ontario that moved from this achievement, age of achievements and effort to premier with a different kind of vision from about 2014 onwards around a well-being, equity as inclusion and not just achievement gaps. If you can't see who you are in your curriculum or the school, it, it's hard to be successful. And we saw the same kind of shifts in uh, Scotland, in Wales, in uh, a number of countries, particularly in uh, Northern Europe. And so on. So this was why, actually, 
five years ago, but the planning came before that. I began to create a network, arguably a movement of uh, around seven countries. It varies year by year, but around seven countries, their ministers and their professional leaders who were not all the developed countries like the OECD brings together, for example, right. but really a, a coalition of the willing around basic values. Uh, it's what we call the ARC Education uh, Collaboratory of uh, broad excellence, equity, inclusion, well-being, uh, democracy, and human rights in professionally run systems. So these outliers have really moved to the center and defined the way the world is moving. And those who've been locked in the age of achievement and effort are now either falling back or trying to catch up. Yeah, it's interesting to see the reaction, right? Because particularly in some areas around the world, you're seeing a real I'm almost saying an entrenchment. It's starting to become a political divide between one group saying that this is absolutely what needs to happen and the other that says, no, absolutely not. And there's nothing in between. You know, what does that create? That creates loss for the children and the educators that are caught in between that, right? There's nothing that good comes good out of that. I was doing a podcast uh, a couple of days ago with Pedro Naguera. And I was referring to the book that he wrote with Rick Hess and Rick Hess being a very conservative writer on education. And what I said to Pedro, I said, I thought the book was so interesting because usually when, you know, people collaborate on books, it's usually people that have similar philosophical, ideological approaches. And what I found so interesting with that book was that, you know, they took classic topics, right, in education, whether it's uh, private schools or, or charter schools or assessment, et cetera. And they basically gave the two opinions. But what they came up with in the middle were things that they could agree on, that even though they had ideologically different approaches, there were things that they could agree on that would be good for kids and teachers and systems. And somehow that's what I really like about the work that you're doing with ARC is that we have to get that information out. What do strong education systems look like? And how do we make sure that as we move or as we continue to move through the age of engagement, well-being and, and identity, that we help systems get that right as opposed to the wrong way of doing that, which we saw in some of the age of achievement. Because as I was participating in the OECD study for social and emotional learning, that was groundbreaking, right? The OECD had never done anything in that area. The academics were doing the conceptual framework for it. How are we going to measure this, et cetera? And my fear was that we could inadvertently do the same thing that we did with literacy and numeracy is taking a very, very narrow measurement. And, you know, those are some of the kinds of things that I think we need to be watching for in the future. How do we make sure that we have organizations that like ARC that are bringing systems together, give opportunities for them to have discourse back and forth and really celebrate successes so that they can influence others that may not have that infrastructure to be able to be involved in those conversations? You know, if you look on the surface without knowing either of these two individuals well, you'd think that probably Pedro Nogueira was a socialist and uh, Rick Hess was a rabid market-driven conservative. What they both are, are libertarians. And libertarians want more freedom. And that is where they will agree. They want freedom from top-down control, standardization, non-responsiveness, lack of diversity. Pedro is 
probably more on the community side of libertarianism, the freedom for communities to do things themselves collectively without too much interference or intervention. And Rick is probably more on the individual side of libertarianism, where people can do as they like as individuals and have the, it's like the debate around vaccination, for example. So it's not surprising, that, and I find there are odd places where I and Rick Hess, because we've been on some bodies together, also oddly find ourselves agreeing. The point about both of them is that if you want a system that fits modern needs in a chaotic, complex, ambiguous and uncertain and volatile world, what the business community calls VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity, then you cannot respond to things like well-being and engagement with top-down control of any kind. You need a more flexible, inclusive and collaborative system to make this work. So some kinds of political governments, and I don't mean only conservative, because in ARC we have conservative governments as well as socialists, coalition, liberal. Uh, we've even had a pirate party in there at, at one particular point. It's not about political ideology. It's certain kinds of both, actually all liberal, conservative uh, and socialist governments that want to maintain a tight grip on control and use all the instruments of power to help them do that, including certain approaches to testing and accountability. And the fact that they are forming a rear guard in countries that we know is really much more to do with that than it is to do with what is the best strategy or what are the needs of the world that we're in at the moment. It'll be interesting to see as we continue through this age of engagement, well-being and identity, how do we capture, how do we document those stories of success from, you know, right down from the classroom and school to entire systems that have policies that actually help to ensure that those kinds of practices are taking place in schools? I'm curious, just as we wrap up, Andy, do you have advice to school leaders and to district leaders and to ministry officials with respect to the idea of creating a culture of student engagement based on what you've seen in your research, what you're seeing in those collaboratives? What's some of your best advice to create a culture of student engagement? I'd say the first thing is, as a school and as a community, not to have an overly stereotyped or narrow view of what engagement is. The original meanings in the English language of what engagements are, engagement is both an inspirational, emotional connection, like engagement in marriage, or even having an engagement to have an appointment, a meeting with somebody else. It's a kind of commitment, really. It is also something tougher than that, like engagement in a battle. It means there's something desperately important here that needs your complete attention that you can't let up on for a minute. And then there's engagement like engagement with gear levers, which means once you've got that, it kind of locks you in. It locks you into what's happening next. And we talk about in the book not overly associating engagement with any one approach to it. So if you're a principal, don't say it's all about technology. Because it's not. There are many ways of getting kids engaged, both with and without technology. Don't say it's all about having fun, because it's not. Engaging to train to be an Olympic athlete is not fun. Learning to 
play the guitar when your fingers hurt at the end is not always fun. Engagement, if you want true mastery, sometimes requires sacrifice and even suffering, not unnecessary suffering, bullying, cruelty. So it has to be your commitment. But engagement involves that as well. And it doesn't always have to be relevant. You don't have to have climate change fatigue, where every project you do is about something that the entire survival of the planet will depend on. It can be about Harry Potter. It can be about where the wild things are. It can be about Frozen. It can be about the constellation of the planets. It can be about um, feminist Latin history. Uh, such a thing exists, by the way. It can be any or all of these things. And so when you're a principal in any change, it's really important that there aren't a large group of teachers who are made to feel everything I've done for the last 30 years is wrong. And now here comes this thing that 20 years ago, we had something that's a bit like it that didn't last. And it doesn't value anything I've done. And I'm not going to go with this. But if you recognize that there are many ways of getting kids engaged, and uh, most teachers already know quite a few of them. And if they can expand their forms of engagement to connect with the increasing diversity of the students we're getting and the students we've always had, like Indigenous students or LGBTQ students, for example, then their success, their competence and their confidence about getting all their students engaged will increase. And that's the job of a leader in relation to engagement. It's a job of a leader in relation to anything. And the place it begins with themselves. So if they can engage the adults in ways they want adults to engage their kids. So an end to boring meetings, meetings as learning events, meetings as forms of play sometimes, meetings involving something challenging, not tedious, then model what it is that you want your educators to do and you'll have much more chance of being successful. Well said, Andy, and I, I really agree with your description that it can't be just one thing. It has to be a combination of things, and it has to be modeled. Teachers have to model it for students, and leaders have to model it for their staff and all staff, not just the teaching staff, but every person that's in that building. It kind of gets down to if you value identity and people get to see themselves in what they're doing, whether it's the child or the adult, if you value relationships and you're constantly nurturing relationships within that school, and you think about really good pedagogy and connection out to parents and communities, if you have those things together, you're going to have students that are totally on fire with their education. And I think that's what you and I would love to see. And uh, luckily, there's lots of great examples out there of exactly that. Andy, it has been a pleasure as always. This is a really interesting book. I love the kind of the historical perspective of bringing the different movements in to get to a place where we are in 2021, where we're actually talking specifically about student engagement. So thanks so much for sharing it with us today. And when is the next book out? I think it's on well-being, right? Well, uh, the book on well-being in schools uh, three forces that will uplift your students in a volatile world. We'll be out with the uh, ASCD, which has uh, about 130,000 members worldwide. And it will be a member's book. So it will go to, it's what we call a premium member's book. So it will go to many of their members in uh, December. Uh, Dennis Shirley and I will be speaking at ASCD's leadership conference in a general session in uh, December in Orlando, Florida. Delta variant notwithstanding. So we've got to see how that plays out, particularly in Florida as well. So that's the next one to look out for. 
Indeed. Well, we look forward to it. And uh, let's do another one of these podcasts so we can talk about that book when it's out. That'd be great to bring together our thinking on well-being and socio-emotional learning. I look forward to that. Perfect, Andy. Thanks so much. And we'll see you again. Bye-bye. Thanks to Andy for joining our podcast today. As always, Andy's reflections are thought-provoking for me and for the audience. He shared some interesting ideas on what student engagement is and isn't, and how educators can think about that as we enter a new school year. If you enjoyed this discussion, you may want to check out a previous episode where Andy talks about his book, Moving, a memoir of education and social mobility. You can find it on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Portal, linked in the description of this podcast. On our next episode to be released on October the 6th, I'll be talking to Dr. Christine Sertam about return to learn in math. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.